0: Welcome
1: everybody to Beauty IQ the podcast. I'm your host Joanna Fleming and I am your co-host Hannah First.
2: So Hannah, the other week I put a question box up on my stories and said, what was your partner using on their skin when you first met them? Mm-hmm. And this was open-ended, could have been anyone that responded, A overwhelming majority of people sending responses through were obviously in relationships with men. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of stalked them when I saw their responses because I just wanted to be sure of what we were dealing with. So um, most of these people responded and said nothing. Their partner was using absolutely nothing on their skin, maybe water occasionally, but mostly nothing. One person said Reef Coconut Suntan Oil as a face moisturizer. What? <laughs> Which I remember using Reef Suntan Oil back in the day, but as a face moisturizer. I just can't imagine the congestion that would have been
1: causing. <laughs> oh, my God.
2: <laughs> Someone said an anti-dandruff shampoo as a cleanser. Okay. Which is, wow, um, that would have been stripping his skin a lot. Another person said the same soap he uses to wash his ass. Nice. Which uh, Very nice. I think we've discussed before. And then another person said nothing at all and only brushed his teeth once a day, the grub. Oh. And I said, okay, but wait, you still dated him even though he only brushed his teeth once a day. So that's kind of on you in fairness. Another person said icicle antiseptic rubbing alcohol all over his face. What? You kn- yeah. <laughs> Yes, all over. But, but why? Like I but d- actually why? don't know. I'm, I really don't know. A lot of these I thought why. The last one that I posted was someone said fresh's face wash and then another person said caught my boyfriend using my old plex to wash his balls. Oops. So um, <laughs> that's where we're at, ladies and gentlemen. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. Leave them better than you found them. That's just my motto. If you can impart some wisdom on skincare before you leave them, you've done your job.
1: You're doing God's work. So I actually have a also have a listener question for you Mm. and it sort of is related to the topic of partners. Yeah. She asks, Hannah, I know you're a busy gal and you may not see this, but I need your help. Ever since I've been using SkinCeutical C for a lick, my dog won't stop trying to lick my face. I think it's because it smells like deli meat. (laughs) (laughs) I love my puppy, so I can't just leave him outside when I have my vitamin C on. Also, my fiancé has said it smells funky. Any tips for covering this up because I don't want to stop using it? Help. And I thought, what a great dilemma for us to solve on this podcast.
2: It's actually funny that she says that because I struggled with the smell in the beginning and I would put Aspect Phytostat 9 over the top because that's also a very fragrant moisturizer. Mm -hmm. So that masks the smell of it quite quickly. But if you have a fragrance-free moisturizer, I think you might be a little bit stuck there. I just love
1: how the the puppy tries to lick her face, but be yeah. sure that, see, Ferulic, maybe that's just your dog?
2: Yeah, maybe your dog just loves expensive skincare. Yeah, like
1: <laughs> good taste.
2: <laughs> on the topic of skincare, Hannah, a few weeks ago we spoke about what you were going to be yes. taking on your hike and you've been back for a little while now, but you did post something when you got back of you using a Femme fresh wipe to clean your face, which I still haven't forgiven <sighs> you for, but
1: I'm really hoping they give you a sponsorship so I'll allow it on this occasion. So I had the Femme fresh wipes, which I used to clean my face and my vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, which one first? <laughs> <laughs> face first, but I actually used two different wipes for both areas. I, don't oh, okay. wanna, I didn't want to mix the grime on my face yeah. with my vagina very delicate vaginal area, Um, don't want to disrupt the pH balance. But anyway, so I did bring a little deluxe sample of um, the Hunter Lab face oil. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was so like buggered by the end of the day, I actually didn't end up using it. I used it once on the first day and then I didn't use it again. And I also brought a Cancer Council sport SPF which I used on my face Mm -hmm. and my body so I really pared it back someone actually messaged me on Instagram and said please share your camping and hiking skincare and I was like um (laughs) well it's femme
2: fresh wipes (laughs) you know what probably benefited you was the fact that you've got oily skin so I probably couldn't wash my face and then go to bed because my skin would be itchy and tight yeah, and right. feel really dry, whereas your natural oils in
1: your skin probably would have kept you feeling kind of hydrated. I was going to say that the reason that I chose the FemFresh wipes was I, I when I put a story up about vaginas, a lot of the people that responded said their boyfriends loved FemFresh, and I just figure that anything that's gentle enough for your vagina – Will be Mm -hmm. fine for your face. I assume so. I haven't looked at the ingredients in the wipes, but okay. um. (laughs) Well, it seemed fine. My skin has completely broken out in pimples today, but I think that might be the. That's totally unrelated. That's probably unrelated, (laughs) to be honest with you. (laughs) Uh, um, so what is on today's episode Hannah so on today's episode we are speaking about pelvic floors for the cringy combo then we're talking to Chelsea from Trophy Wife all about nails and of course the product we didn't know we needed
2: So for today's cringy convo, we have physiotherapist at Total Physio Care, Claire Devos, joining us to talk about pelvic floors. Welcome to the podcast, Claire.
3: Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm a big fan.
2: So we really wanted to talk today about pelvic floors. Hannah and I have seen Clementine Ford, who we both follow, talk about pelvic floors at length, and you know how it's no fun wetting yourself after you have kids. And we really wanted to talk about it because I think it's a very important topic to cover. So can you talk us through what actually is our pelvic floor? Is it like a muscle? What is it?
3: Yeah, so pretty much it is a muscle. Well, it's actually a group of muscles. So they sit pretty much in the bottom of your pelvis and form almost like a little bowl at the base of your pelvis. So connecting from your pubic bone at the front to your tailbone at the back. And then they run from side to side as well. And um, So your pelvic floor has several main functions. So They work with your deep tummy muscles, your back muscles and your diaphragm, which is your main breathing muscle to form what we call your core. So most people have heard of your core. We train the core at the gym. So pelvic floor forms part of the core, it's the base. It's responsible for helping to regulate the pressure in our abdominal cavity. It helps to support the bladder and the bowel and in women, the uterus. And it's really important for our maintenance of our continence and then also important for sexual function as well. So
2: men have a pelvic floor too?
3: Yep, everyone has a pelvic floor. It's just one of those things that it tends to impact women more than men when things go wrong. However, Mm -hmm. men can and are impacted with pelvic floor muscle dysfunction as well.
1: So how does our pelvic floor change during pregnancy and after childbirth?
3: Yeah, so the pelvic floor is a huge player in pregnancy, childbirth and beyond. So during pregnancy, the average woman gains up to 14 kilos. So you've got amniotic fluid, placenta, the growing uterus, of course, the growing baby. Plus, we all put on a little bit of fat, boobs get bigger. So all of that extra weight is extra weight that the pelvic floor is having to carry throughout pregnancy. And then you've got hormones as well that add to the equation and make our pelvis a little bit more mobile than it generally would be. So the pelvic floor is fighting against those forces as well. And then by the time you get to delivery, the pelvic floor has been carrying all of that extra load for nine months and then you've got delivery. So. Labor, whether it's vaginal or caesarean, plays a huge role in pelvic floor function. So with a vaginal delivery, the pelvic floor can stretch up to four times its usual length, which is pretty incredible. And depending on several factors, it can have a huge influence on how things recover postnatally. So things like age of the mother, duration of the labor, size of the baby, whether there were any instruments used in the delivery, such as forceps or vacuum, whether there was an episiotomy, any tearing or stitches involved, all of those things can really strongly impact how our pelvic floor recovers postnatally. I often say to women, labor is kind of like running a marathon without having done any training. It's a really massive event and it's really important that the pelvic floor is nurtured and looked after afterwards. So that's your vaginal delivery and then of course caesarean section is a major abdominal surgery and we're actually cutting through the deep layer of tummy muscles so when you take out one element of those core muscles pelvic floor has to work harder as well so i think there's a bit of a misconception that women who've had a caesarean delivery don't need to do their pelvic floor exercises or don't have any problems with their pelvic floor But that's actually not true because they've still carried the baby for nine months as well. And it takes a while to undo what's been done in that nine months as well.
2: When patients are coming in to see you for pelvic floor treatment, what kind of complications are they presenting with?
3: Yeah, so that's a really great question. It's very, very wide. So you can broadly divide it into two things. You've got more of a weak pelvic floor and that could present with things like Incontinence, whether that be stress, so when you laugh, cough, sneeze, or urge, which is when you struggle to get to the toilet on time. So it can be bladder or bowel incontinence. So some people experience fecal incontinence or they're unable to hold on to wind. You've also got things like pelvic organ prolapse, which is where one or more of the pelvic organs starts to descend into the vagina, and that's actually quite common but quite a scary concept i think for a lot of people and we see that quite commonly postnatally depending on some of those risk factors that i spoke about before in the delivery process so that's kind of your underactive pelvic floor muscles that we actually see a lot and i see this probably a lot more in the prenatal population overactive pelvic floors. So just like any other muscle in our body, the pelvic floor can become tight and it can become sore and you can end up with a range of issues that occur not necessarily because of that, but it can be a part of it. Things like overactive bladder, which is where you find you're going to the toilet all the time, um, even if it's only for a small volume. Things like your painful sex even things like defecation dysfunction, so people who struggle to empty their bowels or tend to be more on the constipated side can sometimes have a bit more of a high tone or a sore pelvic floor. So we see actually a lot of people that need to downtrain their pelvic floor instead of uptrain. So making sure that you see someone who is able to do a really thorough assessment and discern whether it's overactive, underactive, bit of both, is really important because you can be doing the wrong thing if you're just going out and doing kegels all the time without having that proper assessment
2: that was going to be my next question actually about kegels because obviously that's an exercise you can do but there's also kegel balls which we have at adore do you recommend those claire
3: yeah look depending on the person again i think if you were more on the overactive side with your pelvic floor the main thing that we need to address first is normalizing the tone and lengthening mm-hmm. the muscle after that point, of course, it's really good to be strong. So they're actually a really good option. I think they're probably a little less intrusive on your day than doing traditional pelvic floor muscle training, which can be a bit tedious and boring. You can kind of pop them in wear them, go about your daily activities. They're also really great because say you're doing the vacuuming or cooking dinner, you're constantly changing position and your pelvic floor has to respond to those changes in abdominal pressure to hold the balls in. So, mm-hmm. again, in the right person is really important.
1: What does seeing a pelvic floor physio actually involve?
3: Yep. Yeah, so anyone can see a pelvic floor physio. You don't need a GP referral at all. So you'll come in and we take a really thorough history. So it'll include general medical, surgical history as well as what you do for work, what you do for leisure, things like that. And then we get into more of the pelvic floor specific questions. So quite an in-depth history about all your bladder function, bowel function, sexual function. We like talking about poo just as much as you guys do. So lots of in-depth <laughs> questions. I get out my poo chart and show everyone that and ask them, which poo are you? Um, so we ask keeps of really in-depth questions. And then once we've got a good idea of what the main problems are we can start looking at assessments. So there are a few different ways we can do assessment. We can do real-time ultrasound, which is where we almost shine like a torch beam. It's similar to the ultrasound obstetricians use, only generally less high quality. So we can see the way the bladder moves and when you do a pelvic floor contraction, which can tell us whether the pelvic floor is turning on and off as it should. We can have a look at the external muscles and see what's going on. But the gold standard and the most informative way is to do either a vaginal or a rectal or sometimes both. So we it's usually a single digit examination and much less uncomfortable than a speculum exam. And that gives us the best idea of what's actually going on with your muscles. Are they overactive? Are they underactive? Are they just not firing well? Are you just a little bit uncoordinated? So that gives us a really good idea of where to go next with the treatment. And often we'll also get you to fill out some questionnaires. It might be a bladder diary or just a general questionnaire that will help us to gauge how effective treatment is over time, because physio is a really evidence-based stream of healthcare. And we like to make sure that what we're doing is effective and make sure that we're achieving outcomes.
2: So what would be an example of a treatment plan for someone with an overactive and underactive pelvic floor?
3: So say someone came in with an overactive pelvic floor, and I see this a lot, initial treatment is usually around helping them to downregulate those muscles. So there's lots of breathing exercises, there might be some stretches in there. Sometimes we might do things like release work, just like you would with any other muscle. There are some devices that you can use to help do release work at home as well. So, there are things like a thorough wand. And for some women who have pain with intercourse, we like to get them using dilators to help train them up towards returning to that. So, that would be a few of the steps we might take with someone who's overactive. Once we've normalised their tone, we can then start strengthening them as well because like any muscle, it's really hard to strengthen a short muscle. And then for someone who's underactive, we would generally start with trying to get those muscles firing. So... We might try a heap of different cues. For some women, we need to actually get some of the other external muscles firing to help with that as well. And there are also things like electrical stimulation and biofeedback devices that we can use to help get the muscles firing. So there are a wide range of different options and everything is really individualized to the person that's coming in and what they're happy to commit to, what they're comfortable with and what's going to be most effective for them as well. And
2: in your professional opinion, why do you think there's still such a a stigma or shame around postpartum pelvic changes? Clementine speaks a lot about this on her channel in that like women just don't speak about it and we're going around, you know, suffering, I guess, with, pelvic floor issues and not having it dealt with or speaking about it with our friends or even medical professionals. Why do you think as a professional that that's still the case?
3: I think there's a bit of taboo about talking about things to do with bladder and bowel health and certainly around sexual health as well, which I mean, it's great that you guys and Clementine are starting to open up the conversation and normalise the conversation around it a bit more. There also seems to be a bit of an idea that It's really normal to happen after you have a baby. You know, the tenor lady ads all sort of say, oh, I have bladder leakage and I just use this pad and it's normal and it's really common. And whilst it's a really common issue, you know, with one in three women who've had a baby experiencing some degree of incontinence, it's something that's actually not normal and it can be fixed and it can be helped and it should be spoken about because it's an issue that we can address and same goes for any of the other issues that women may encounter like difficulty emptying their bowels or having painful sex like those things are not things that we have to suffer through and i don't know i mean some of it probably comes down to the fact that although men can have pelvic floor issues it's primarily something that tends to impact women and It's probably a bit swept under the rug for that reason as well. And Mm -hmm. I think with the shift towards trying to encourage conversations around issues that impact women more, that should start to change as well.
2: Yeah, I love that. I was going to ask before we wrap up as a physio, you must see a variety of concerns that have to do with postpartum bodies, like muscle separation, all of that stuff. So, what are the most common things that you would see post pregnancy that you can help to correct? So, if there's you know, women in our audience that are struggling with something post-birth, should they come and see you?
3: Definitely, I mean, in an ideal world, every single woman would have a physio assessment before they have their baby and a physio assessment at six weeks after that would be the gold standard in care, which would allow us to head off any of those issues early, guide women back into sport, guide them back into their activities, make sure everything's tracking along well. So we see a wide range of issues. I see a lot of women with back pain from breastfeeding or neck pain from breastfeeding that we can really help with. Abdominal separation, as you mentioned, is pretty common and something that certainly a lot of women get hung up on and we can, Start to address that through functional training of the pelvic floor and the deep tummy muscles in the right way. A lot of people think, oh, go out and do some sit ups. That'll be great. And sit ups are a great exercise, but not always at the right time. So, the right exercise at the right time and really having that guidance to get back into things. There's also, I think, probably not enough of a push to see a physio just to get that guidance back into exercise because it's not just your pelvic floor that's been out of action for a while, if you've not been exercising as much through your pregnancy and in that early postpartum stage, chances are you need to rehab your whole body, not just your pelvic floor. So definitely important if you've got any concerns, go and get them checked. They're probably more common than you think, and they can definitely be helped. And if we can't help, then we'll know where to send you to get that help as well.
2: Some great advice there. Thanks for joining us today, Claire. That was really helpful. No
3: worries at all. Thanks for having me.
2: Now, if you don't know Trophy Wife, uh, I go there sometimes to get my nails done because I idolize Chelsea. So she's joining us today to talk about nail care and nail art. Welcome to the podcast. Hi guys. Thanks for having me. So Chelsea, you're actually the one that got me on to daily cuticle oils. So can we talk a little bit about what cuticle oil does for both the nails and cuticles? What are the main benefits?
0: Well, basically it has a lot of really amazing benefits. So firstly, it, it promotes healthy nail growth. So The cuticle, underneath the cuticle is your nail matrix where your nail is made. So basically keeping that hydrated is really good for healthy nail development. It's also really good for keeping your nail enhancements, like extending the life of your nail enhancements. So your normal nail polish, your gel polish, it basically keeps it hydrated and flexible and so it can discourage them being brittle and chipping and things like that. So it's good to keep your natural nail flexible. I find
2: that it definitely helps with those, um, you know, the bits that you get beside your nails, you the dry nails. bits. And then, yeah, and then you end up pulling it and you pull half your finger off. Yeah, definitely. It stops that from happening.
0: Yeah, so after a, a nice warm shower, Gently pushing your cuticles back, just very gently, and then finishing with a cuticle oil. You can basically eliminate getting hangnails at all. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend. I do preach about it all day, every day. I'm not sure that many people listen, but Joanna did. I definitely did. (laughs) (laughs) So that's good. (laughs) Do you have any favorite cuticle oils that you recommend? Um, Well, I think it's just like skincare, I guess, really. Like different oils Mm -hmm. obviously have different benefits. Um, My favorite is jojoba. I buy it in bulk now. I basically just buy pure jojoba oil. I like that best because it's the most similar to the oils that your body naturally produces. So it can soak in through your nail plate and your cuticles much easier than oils with a bigger molecular size. So they basically penetrate the the deepest and give the most moisture to the nail plate. Whereas oils like sweet almond oil, they have a larger molecular size, which are still good and hydrating, but they're going to hydrate the higher layers of the skin rather than penetrating so deeply into the nail plate. So you can have a combination, like I know a lot of people mix them and if you're buying them from a brand, they will often be a blend. So if you're going to get a blend, I guess my top three that I would look for would be jojoba, avocado oil, and vitamin E is really good as well because it's obviously good for anti-aging and repair. So. Those would be my three. I feel like people should treat
2: cuticle oil like lip balm.
0: We always have a lip balm
2: everywhere.
1: Yes. Just have a cuticle oil everywhere. And at Trophy Wife, you only use regular polish and gel polish. Why don't you perform other popular nail enhancements like SNS
0: and acrylics? I think it's personal preference, really. I, I think that all nail enhancements have their place in the market and their pros and cons. Like I will never say don't do any for any reason because I feel like, you know, each to their own. We don't use acrylic because it's not vegan, so that's one thing. But products like that and S and like dipping powders, which we call SNS, they're really good for people who need really hard wearing products on their nails or are really rough with their nails. Like for example, we have a hairdresser at work and she gets SNS because she's got her hands in water all day, which is nail enhancement's worst enemy, really, water. And it's also non-porous, so she doesn't get staining from the tint in the color, which you would with gel. But for me, I made the decision pretty early that I would focus on more natural nail care services. We do offer a kind of extension if you're wanting length, which is a product called Apre Gel X, which is a softer gel soak off system, like with a tip still. I usually would suggest those for for you if you have like an upcoming event or you're just trying to get a little kickstart on your growth. But I usually try and promote or push people into starting fresh with a nice natural nail and growing them out over time. It really does take patience to get a nice healthy natural nail. So
1: I'm guilty of picking off my um S- more shellac actually than SNS. I don't even think you can pick SNS off. That is like
0: Oh my god, people do it. I don't know how, but people do it. Like, I've had people before because we don't, we don't remove SNS either. Like, so basically, the amount of people that are like, I just really quickly picked it off in the car before I came in. I'm like, why? Oh my god, don't do that. Stop (laughs) doing that. And they're just like paper, papery little thin waves. Oh, oh,
1: I can't imagine how painful that would be. It makes me weak. Oh. I did actually do that on my on my toes, and I completely ruined the nails underneath, and it had to completely grow out again. Yes. So, what is the best way to
0: remove your SNS and shellac at home? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying that I would really suggest going back to the place that you got it put on to have it safely removed. But obviously that's not always possible. I feel like you need to know, really know actually what product you have on first to be able to best remove it. I would research what brand I had as well. Like it's okay to ask a nail tech what you had because for example, if a product says soak for 10 minutes, that is the minimum recommended soaking time. So you can't expect to just hack it off within 10 minutes. Sometimes products will take longer. Like maybe you'll need to soak it for 10 minutes longer so I would really recommend researching what it is first. But you basically want acetone. Pure, I prefer pure acetone because it gets the job done quicker. And you just want to file through, buff the top of your nail through the top coat so that you can penetrate the layers of the color underneath with the acetone. You obviously don't want to file through so that you can see your natural nail underneath because overfiling is where a lot of the damage comes with removal. And then soaking them with acetone. So I use a cotton ball and a finger snap, which is like a little plastic clip that goes on the top, but if you've just at home, you can obviously use tin foil. I just don't like the environmental waste of it. (laughs) Um, And then once you've soaked for the recommended soaking time, which is usually about 10 minutes, using a wooden cuticle stick or a cuticle pusher, you just want to gently push the product off the nail. If it's not coming up, then you need to go back to soaking. So basically you just want to be really, really gentle because that is where a lot of nail damage comes from, is from poor removal. Mm -hmm. That advice saved my nails at the
2: start, at the very start. This time last year, I had (laughs) shellac on my nails and I was was messaging you going, oh my God, how do I take it off myself? Because I'd never actually had to take it (laughs) it off myself. I'd always had it done in a salon. But what about the drill? Should we avoid the, if we go into a salon and they've got the drill and they try and remove it with that, is that a red flag? I mean,
0: it is and it isn't. I feel like if you are properly, if you're a tech who's properly trained with a drill, then that's perfectly fine. Like you can also ask if you are not comfortable with risking that. When you've removed the nail enhancements, should you use
2: like a nail strengthener or cuticle oil or any other kind of product to, I guess, restore the nails after you've taken the enhancement off?
0: I always think that it's good to put a product on after because you're going to put a layer, another layer of protection on. I think um, nail hardeners are good, but they're not always beneficial. So I think it depends on what your surface of your nail is like after you've had the Mm -hmm. removal. If they're really dry and flaky and stuff like that, obviously I'd really recommend a cuticle oil. Sometimes nail nail hardeners can be counterproductive because It doesn't impact the growth of your nail at all. It just sits on top of your nail. And sometimes products and ingredients in it can dry them out even more. So it's really good if you've got paper-thin nails used in conjunction with the cuticle oil because it's going to promote them to be more flexy than just dry and brittle. But if you've just got a normal natural nail that's undamaged, I would steer clear of hardness. So as you know,
2: you're my nail inspiration and I always look to you for approval whenever I attempt my own nail art. If there are any other budding nail artists out there that love to do their own nail art at home, what tools do you think every beginner needs? Because you sent me a pack of tools and that has been a game changer.
0: I definitely think the pack of tools that I sent to you are the most essential, which is a dotting tool set, which is basically... They usually come in a set of five and on their end, they have various size little dots for little flowers or just little details and things like that. And secondly, a really good nail art, what we call a striping brush, which is basically a really thin, bristled, long brush, paintbrush, essentially, which you can get them from art stores and things like that. Like there's been times we've got them and cut them even thinner, but I think it's worth investing in one really good nail art striping brush that's made for nail polish because obviously the bristles and things like that are made for various paints. So if you're buying a nail art brush, then you know it's for nail polish.
1: So just to touch a bit more on nail care, if we're wanting to maintain healthy, strong nails, what can we do nail care wise to support growth and strength?
0: Um, In a perfect world, do less and just live a life of leisure. That would be the ideal scenario because obviously your hands cop the brunt of a lot of task all day, every day that without even realizing it. But we always have that classic nail tech saying jewels, not tools, um, <laughs> which is like basically avoid using them for opening boxes. And like I even use a knife now to open the back of tin cans and things after too many nail accidents. Mm. There's a lot of internal external factors as well. So it can just be genetics if you've got weak nails, like obviously like hormonal or if you're on medication and stuff like that. But I guess basic tips would be avoid soaking them in water for too long of a time because they actually swell up when you have like after you've had a really long shower and then they're more likely to break afterwards. Um, Like I said before, just like always keeping a layer of polish or something on them for added strength. Only file them in one direction because they're actually, nails are actually made up of a crossweave. So if you're hacking them backwards and forwards then you're going to get fraying on your
2: nails. Uh Is that why um, they do that at the salon? They they only do One Direction. Oh, my God, I've been doing that wrong. I'm so glad you told me this.
0: <laughs> and the last thing I would say is something that we, it's a in-salon treatment, which is called IBX, which we kind of, refer to as the Olaplex for nails.
2: Ah. Interesting. So, I've heard yes. about this IBX,
0: but that's a really good analogy. Yes. That helps people to understand what it does. <laughs> so it's basically penetrative curable monomer system. So there's two it's a two part system. So they have a repair and and the IBX. So it's the repair is applied to the visibly damaged parts of the nail and then it's heated in and cured. So it sits under the nail. So you don't actually have to remove it ever. So it doesn't add maintenance. Ah. So it doesn't add a chore. So who would you recommend that for? It's really good for if you get a lot of nail flaking and chipping. So Mm. obviously if they're really dry and brittle or I've also had really amazing results with ridges, ridging in the nails. So Mm -hmm. um, I've heard you, Joe, talk about before how like with your, you had that nervous habit where you were like picking at the nail. It's really good for that. It's recovered now, but yeah. It's amazing. So it's made to go under polish. So I'll often recommend it with a gel polish first. Yeah. It's really great for healing splits and peels and grooves. And it adds kind of a protective layer with the IBX. So, Do you need
2: to have that ongoing or is that like a one service Kind of situation.
0: It depends, really. They recommend that you do it over a six-month period. I guess every time, if you're having it on and off consistently, I kind of just say we should just look at it and see how it goes over time and see how you're now helping. I'm quite cynical with products generally. I don't really believe marketing of things, but this I've really noticed a noticeable difference, and I really use it on myself. But yeah, I would say like at least a couple of times. I've got clients who won't go without it now because they feel like it helps extend the life of their manicure. They're usually women with longer nails, but yeah, I think that is a game changer in terms of repair. So I
2: find nail art very mesmerizing to watch. I love when you do tutorials on your Instagram, but I think the pressure would be too much for me. I'm not sure that I could ever be an employee because I would panic. <laughs> um, what's your favorite piece of nail art you've ever done and what's been the hardest? I know you said you tried to do flames and they were quite hard to do. Flames
0: I f- I'm fine with now. I'm p- at peace okay. with flames.
2: Yep.
0: <laughs> it's really hard to pick a favorite. I, maybe I'll start with the hardest I did these ones a few years ago. You know that Kim Kardashian game app that she had, Kim Kardashian Hollywood. There were portraits of Kim K and Kris Jenner from the game, from the game cartoon version of them. It was so hard. It was really hard. Was it my mum Linda?
1: (laughs) Is she a Kim (laughs) K fan? Oh my god, she loves Kim (sighs) K and the Kardashians.
0: It was really hard making um, characters, recognisable characters yeah. on such a tiny surface. If you get them slightly wrong, they do look like a Pinterest <laughs> fail. <Yeah. laughs> Their eyes are slightly too far one way and it's not cute. Did you end up pulling it off though? I think so. I went and I was looking through last night and they looked okay. I feel like I could do a better job now, but I actually don't want to. So yeah. <laughs> nobody asked for that.
2: Note to self, don't ask for a Kim mm-hmm. K portrait on nails. Don't do that.
0: But Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about my favourite. I do really love really fine line work and minimal prints. I I feel like my styles probably changed from when I first started, which was like all fruits and cute and colour, which is now is probably a bit more streamlined.
1: So if you could only use three nail polish shades, specific brand names and shades for the rest of your life, <gasps> what would they be? Why
0: would you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> we do this to everybody. <laughs> Can I pick a gel polish as well? And then as like yeah. a bonus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll allow it. <laughs> an exception to the rule. Um, for gel <laughs> polish, I would probably go for, it's probably the most, one of the most favourite colours in the salon. It's called Melty Gelato. And it's a um, Japanese gel called Presto Gel Polish. It's kind of just like a really natural sheer kind of thing. So it's like see-through, but it basically just looks like your nail, but elevated, I guess. That's Mm -hmm. how I would describe it. Um, Normal nail polish. I think... I would have to go with OPI, Don't Bossa over Me Around. That's a real favorite of mine. <laughs> what color is that? It's a opaque nude, but it's kind of got a slight mauve tone to it, but it really mm-hmm. suits so many different skin tones. Um, I feel like I'm really boring, I'm just saying all nudes, but I'm gonna do one color <laughs> at the end. <laughs> um essie ballet <laughs> slipper which is a classic so i use that a classic. lot for um classic 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 color But if i'm doing negative space stuff so i'll use that as like a slight coverage sheer and then put color on top and then i really love kester black have a color called forget me not which is a dusty blue baby blue which is like mm. my favorite color
2: yeah nice i've seen that color before it is really nice well, if you want to go and see any of Chelsea's work, she's actually on our YouTube channel. You did three very quick nail art tutorials for us on our YouTube channel. So you can go and watch those or you can find her on Instagram at Trophy Wife Nail Art. Thank you for joining us today on The Potty.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
2: Product we didn't know we needed, Hannah. Why don't you kick us off? I can see you've got a bit of a bargain as yours today.
1: The reason I thought of this product was because I got back from the hike and my skin has just freaked out. It's like pimples just everywhere Um, and big mama blind ones as well. So I actually last night I put on the SkinCeuticals Blemish and Age Defence and then I added Mm -hmm. the Boost Lab Niacinamide over the top and that Mm -hmm. made me think, Oh, my God, I haven't ever spoken about Boost Lab, I don't think, on this podcast. Yeah, I don't know that we have. They have got really affordable serums that I'm really enjoying. I've been using – They're all $29.95, aren't they? Yeah, but this pack, the Boost Lab Supercharged Skincare Pack, it's a seven-piece set of serums, is only $150 for seven serums. And I'm pretty sure – That includes an eye serum as well. Mm -hmm. So it's got a retinol, it's got a hyaluronic acid, it's got a vitamin C, it's got a peptide, AHA, and then it's also got the niacinamide. Like what else do you need?
2: Seriously, what else do you need? A sunscreen, that's about
1: it. You need a sunscreen, a cleanser. And a moisturiser. Yeah, so I won't go through each of the serums, but I have used almost all of them and I think for a starter set – you know, if you're new to serums and you don't want to like, you know, invest all your money straight off the bat, I think this one's a good one to start with just simply because of the price point, but also they're really nice products and nice yeah. packaging as well.
2: I mean, the ordinary better watch their back. I think <sighs> Booz Lab might be coming for them.
1: <laughs> and what is yours?
2: Um, Mine today is the Mason Balzac La Chapelle candle. I have the little mini one at home and I went earlier before we started recording i was like i just need to sniff it so that i can get like a vibe for it so that i can explain it and to be honest it reminded me of church anyone who went to a catholic school will highly relate to this but there's a church smell and it kind of smells like that, to be honest. It wasn't in a negative way. It just, when I smelled it, I thought this reminds me of being an altar girl in grade six. It says it's a woody candle inspired by French village churches. There you go. Oh, there you
1: go. So it
2: contains notes of incense, myrrh and Mediterranean citrus. It is a very beautiful smelling candle because it is very incense So instead of burning incense, which can get a little bit smoky in a small place, I would suggest this candle and I also really like their, I feel like I've mentioned their other candle as
1: well. Is it the 14,
2: 1406 or something,
1: 1604? Oh, my God, that was so funny. Yeah, 1642 it's called. It was like a really existential candle. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It says uh, the 1642 is inspired by 17th century Vanita's paintings.
1: Those paintings are like when worldly objects are contrasted with symbols of mortality. Yeah, which yeah. no
2: one knows what the f- that means, but I um, do. I feel like <laughs> speak for yourself. Well, I I think that intellectual power, Hannah, will be really attractive to Colin Farrell because I hear he's in <laughs> Australia.
1: So, so I said to Joe this morning, she was like, "Go to Gold Coast," and I was like, "I can't." I'm just... going to the Gold Coast, so I said that if you see him, can you please? Like uh, I'd love to get him on the podcast to talk about his tattoo removal. I feel like Mm -hmm. I need to know why did he get them all removed? Because he claims that he got them all removed because he didn't want to sit in the makeup chair for 45 minutes. But I have had tattoo removal now and I know how painful it is and I just don't believe that for a second. Maybe he
2: met a girl that's like me who prefers her men not to have tattoos. And well, no, because he hasn't met me yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so he's working on a movie Movie called 13 Monkeys. I reckon we can manifest to this. So, right. and get this, I shit you not, he is in the hinterland Gold Coast filming a movie that's set in Thailand. It's crazy. No, I, I can't make this stuff up.
2: You really are aligned, Hannah. <laughs> um, this could be your chance. I don't think you should... <laughs> You, you really <laughs> well, need to jump on this now.
1: Can anyone, like there must be like a, a friend of a producer. Is there anyone
2: producing this movie in the Gold Coast hinterland that can put yeah. us in touch with Colin Farrell?
1: Yeah, let's start with let's get him on the podcast. I yeah. will, okay. you know, let's see if sparks fly over Zoom. Should we
2: or should we not tell him about that <laughs> booklet you made in your French class? Oh should my- we keep that under wraps <gasps> for a
1: while? Or? He might be freaked out a little bit. I feel like he yeah, might. Yeah, so
2: maybe wait till you're like six months into the role relationship and be like, oh, my God, I just found By this. the way. Isn't this funny?
1: <laughs> Have I said this on this podcast how when I posted on my Instagram that um, booklet that I created in my French project, mm. it was my marriage to Colin Farrell, mm. that people thought that I meant, first of all, they thought I meant Colin Firth. Okay, fair. Yes. <laughs> then they <laughs> thought I meant Will Ferrell. Um, <laughs> what? And then, and then the other one was Steve Carell. Like... <laughs> Like Will Ferrell, like Will Ferrell, okay, Farrell Ferrell, but Steve Carell? Like that is not even close to Colin Farrell's name. Anyway, let's put that out to the universe. Yeah,
2: we'll keep you guys posted posted. on that love story.